0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. I'm your host, Genevieve Marcoci. For today's in-depth episode, I am joined with Professor Roy McCarth. He has been the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University since January 2015. Formerly, he was the founding director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute from 2007 to 2015.
1: I actually think that unfortunately there is an inevitability to australia and china having frictions that doesn't mean that it has to end in, in tears and it certainly doesn't mean that australia is going to be alone in that uh, contest.
0: today we are discussing china's claims in the south china sea australia's involvement with the us on the common cause as well as the international war of the sea thank you so much for being here professor Roy mccuff it's a pleasure and a privilege so I've seen that you've recently published a book called "Contest for the Indo-Specific Why China Won't Map the Future," and the international version is called "Indo-Specific Empire: China, America, and the Contest for the World's Pivotal Region." Do you want to tell us a bit more about those, uh,
1: Genevieve? It's a great pleasure to be with you on the on the program, and naturally, I um I uh, I will accept the invitation to say a little bit about my my recent book. I think. Um, just to, to situate this work in a larger uh, a larger context, you know, I feel that my career has very much been about uh, trying to understand and explain the really um, dynamic changes that are occurring in the world, especially in the world of, of, of security and foreign policy. So um, I hope your program is a, another vehicle, I guess, for, for that journey and having worked in uh, diplomacy, in intelligence, in journalism, in academia, uh, it, it all comes together in a conversation like this. So the book, thanks for mentioning the book, The Contest for the Indo-Pacific, which is a book that, in fact, I wrote over a number of years and only published at the start of this year, right on the eve of the pandemic, as it turns out. Uh, so it's not a book about the pandemic, but I do think it's a book that sets the scene for the the really difficult international tensions that we're now dealing with in the COVID and after world, as I, would, um, as I would describe it. The book's very much about, at one level, about China and about the rise of China, the assertive rise of China, and the way in which I think uh, Chinese foreign policy, diplomacy, security, assertiveness is kind of out, out of control. In a way, I think it's almost out of China's own control. There's a whole destabilising momentum that's occurring, everything from the tensions in the South China Sea, which I know we're going to talk about a bit later in the program, right through to issues like espionage, propaganda, political interference, the use of economics for leverage. It's really quite a long, sad story about how I think China hasn't turned out the way many of us hoped it would, and how, you know, even with all of the uh, the vicissitudes and the dysfunction of the Trump administration, how nonetheless a whole lot of other countries now are needing to find uh, a way to essentially band together to prevent this, this destabilising behaviour from, from getting worse. So let, let's get into that in the conversation, but the book situates how to cope with Chinese power in this framework of the Indo-Pacific, which really is code for the much larger region, uh, the much larger regional order that Australia now finds itself having to navigate, not only the Pacific and East Asia, which was the late 20th century version of our region, but also the Indian Ocean as well, because in many ways, China's expanding interests extend right across this large region. And and in a sense, this larger regional canvas also provides part of the solution because it gives a country like Australia a much larger web of partners uh, that we can work with to hopefully set set limits to Chinese power and essentially to try to keep the peace.
0: Yeah, that's a great synopsis. I'm excited to get into that with you. So firstly, what does the National Security College do in terms of because I saw that it does these policy engagement projects. So are they working on any at the moment that are maritime security based?
1: So the National Security College is an unusual beast. As you said, we're a kind of a, a joint initiative of the Commonwealth Government and the Australian National University. So it gives us, I guess, one foot inside the the official tent, if you like. Um, a lot of our staff come from government agencies and get seconded to spend a period of time with us. And it's a I guess it's a slightly liberating experience for them because they get to step out of the bureaucracy for a little while. But we also provide a bridge for academics and deep researchers to connect with the big policy issues happening inside government. So we're kind of a, I guess, a trusted space or a safe space in between the two. And so we do a few things with that space. We do a lot of training courses for government officials. We have an academic program, a master's degree. Uh, in fact, just last night I was hosting the first lecture for the semester with, I think, no fewer than 85 master's students from all over the country and, and overseas as well. Uh, so that's another great vehicle, if you like, for building a new inclusive culture of national security. And you're right, we also do what we call policy engagement. So we do, I guess, think tank style roundtables, reports, research, trusted conversations, uh, offering a bit of, I guess, contestability to the policy ideas of the day. And yes, some of that work is in this area of maritime security, of uh, Australia's security in the Indo-Pacific region, And it ranges from, for example, a few examples that we have going at the moment, it ranges from work that we've been doing on future technologies and on, for example, whether submarines have a future in the region, future of submarine detection. So issues that are very, very technical and specific, but have actually quite profound consequences for, I guess, whether the future is going to be one of of peace or war, right through to much more political issues. So for example, we're doing a lot of work at the moment on propaganda, and political interference and the i guess the control of propaganda narratives by different countries and obviously china and russia are very high on the list of countries that interest us there and that has a kind of a consequence in the the pandemic environment because of course misinformation and the battle of narratives that we're seeing internationally is is a a really big deal our policy work covers really the full spectrum. And a lot of the most interesting work we're doing at the moment, much of which is in, I guess, trusted conversations with government officials or with industry or experts. So I can't go into the details, but the, the big picture is kind of obvious. It's what does this new strategic landscape risk look like, this COVID and after world? Because frankly, everyone is scrambling to understand that. And I don't think we've got the answer yet
0: yeah exactly and this is very much an evolving situation at the moment with a lot of heightened tensions coming through with china and the osmin held earlier what are the current major challenges being faced in the indo-pacific region
1: so look i think you've mentioned the the osmin talks that is the very high level ministerial talks between australia and the united states where the defense and foreign ministers essentially on both sides getting together and of course a little bit controversial this year partly because Our ministers decided um, that it was necessary to fly to the US for those talks, and that's obviously going to be controversial in the pandemic environment, and also because America is taking such a hard line on China at present. There was a speech last week by Secretary of State Pompeo that almost sounded like a declaration of a new Cold War, although his argument would be that China's already declared that new Cold War some years ago what are the big issues i think that for australia at the moment we really are having to think very very hard about you know tough decisions for our future decisions that i think governments have tried to avoid or defer for a number of a number of years the obvious one is will australia get caught up in some kind of confrontation between america and china and i try to reframe that especially in my my book which I think is in a sense of guide to this this landscape this multipolar strategic landscape is the term I'd use and of course anyone who's familiar with the world of diplomacy know that knows that multipolarity is essentially a kind of code for a region of many powers of many players the big issues at the moment I think are in many ways related to the China's assertiveness internationally the way that it's throwing its weight around and I as I've argued, I think, the way that this probably isn't a premeditated strategy in some ways. It's a function of the, the extreme internal authoritarianism that Chinese leadership has chosen to pursue. And there's this this trend or this thread, if you like, that connects repression at home with assertiveness abroad. It's almost as if Chinese nationalism under the Communist Party has to be pushy and assertive abroad in order to sustain control of the population at home. Now we don't actually know of course whether that is necessary but that seems to be the conclusion the leadership has drawn. And therefore the big issues that we're seeing range from a renewal or a dub- doubling down of assertiveness at sea, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, these waters that are contested between China and other countries. You know there is a very complex set of contesting and overlapping claims to the waters of the South China Sea, and therefore the rights to use those waters, whether it's for navigation or for exploitation of resources, or indeed for positioning military assets. It's this this, this horrible big chessboard, if you like, that it's that it's become. There's also the whole political debate about the coronavirus and, of course, the question of how did it arise and why did China fail in those initial weeks, those crucial initial weeks, to contain... spread of the virus or even to warn the world or warn itself that the virus was there and Australia's got itself into an interesting um, bit of friction with China because Australia's had the Australian government's had the sort of audacity to suggest there should be an international inquiry into this which is a position that in the end most of the international community has accepted. Questions and disputes over technology, 5G technology in particular, and the internet of things, and whether in fact China's development of those technologies is in part serving as a kind of a, a vehicle for future espionage or sabotage inside countries that might have political differences with China. You know, the list just goes on. And then there's the repression of democratic rights in Hong Kong. There's new threats to to take Taiwan by force. There's a big clash, continuing clash, if you like, on the border with India on that disputed border. You know, I think something's gone gravely wrong inside Chinese diplomacy because the leadership is somehow getting the message that it's okay to pick lots of fights with lots of countries at the same time. And yet, for a country like Australia, what we really want is, yes, a stable region, yes, the protection of the interests and values of smaller countries so it's not just big countries throwing their weight around but we also don't want to destroy our relationship with china we want a relationship of mutual respect we want to continue a healthy trading relationship all of this sense of what should be normal and what should be expected in international affairs is now up in the air is now is now contested is now uncertain so i think that for People who are interested in careers in this space, who are simply interested in the future of of their country and their world, there's never been a better time to to try to get your head around these issues.
0: During these times of heightened tensions and kind of China asserting itself in the region, how important is it that we as Australia work with Japan and other neighbours?
1: The South China Sea dispute is open to a lot of, I guess, misinterpretation and oversimplification. And I think that's what China has often done. Uh, remember that you know, the Chinese official line is that the South China Sea basically belongs to China. There's this very vague map called the Nine-Dashed Line, which essentially, in the official view of the Chinese government, gives China the right to fairly much that entire sea. And yet, although it's called the South China Sea, it's actually mostly international waters, international shipping lanes, or waters that are close to the territory of other countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, uh, even little Brunei. And so, in other words, China's claim, China's version of the South China Sea belonging to it, and fairly much every other country's interpretation of the situation are different. This matters because there are constant skirmishes or clashes or confrontations between fishing vessels or maritime militia coast guards and the like occasionally naval ships or air force assets as well in other words the risk the constant risk of a conflict and a dispute where precedents are being set in international law you know precedents that the law of the sea, which China actually signed on to, was involved in negotiating and then, and then very much signed on to an international convention, the rights of small countries under that convention potentially being thrown out the window. And if it happens in this case, then potentially it could happen elsewhere. That's a very long-winded way of saying that what happens in the South China Sea is everyone's business, it's every nation's business, because most of the world benefits from trade that goes through those waters and other countries have legal rights under international law to continue to sail, fly, navigate freely through the South China Sea. That is to some extent being disputed because China has built a number of artificial islands, put military bases on those islands, and then claimed that these islands, which are not islands at all, are essentially rocks and reefs under the water with structures built on them. And that's really important because it means that under international law, they do not give China territorial the territorial rights that it would have if they were real natural islands that it had an actual legitimate claim to. Because of all these pressures, countries like Australia, Japan, India, the United States, and fairly much everyone outside the region, including the Europeans, fairly much everyone outside the immediate neighborhood, I should say, of, of the South China Sea, we all have an interest in preserving the South China Sea as a shared international space, not the private lake of one country. And that's why there's so much tension over the issue. That's why the US Navy insists on conducting what it calls freedom of navigation operations, and that is deliberately sailing close to these artificial Chinese islands to demonstrate that they're not Chinese territory. And that's why countries like Australia and Japan, maritime nations, trading nations, I think do have reason and right to continue to be present in the South China Sea to sail through, to conduct military exercises and so forth. Doing it though in a way that is firm, but not provocative. And so I've argued we should see more of this, we should see more countries involved and certainly not just countries that are US allies or countries that China can insist, not really Asian countries, because I think that's an accusation obviously that China tries to level at America and Australia in particular. But we're in for a difficult time there because of course, a lot of the smaller countries in the region, places like Singapore, the Philippines are intimidated by China and therefore naturally don't want China to bully them, but nor do they want to take risks. The way forward is probably going to have to be building some kind of international solidarity. And that's why it is important for Australia to step forward as an active international citizen And to do this in ways that are consistent with international law, because I guess one of the most important findings of an international court in recent years has been in 2016 when the so-called Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, international court recognised under the United Nations, essentially ruled in favour of the Philippines against China over their claims in the South China Sea, arguing that China could not claim possession of the South China Sea on some spurious historical grounds, and arguing that China's building of artificial islands there was essentially illegal. So, tense times ahead, even though, you know, we should be worrying first and foremost about the public health disaster of COVID, the economic disaster, and the rivalries between nations that that has brought about. Unfortunately, China has chosen this moment not to transcend those rivalries with some sort of new effort at cooperation, but instead has been doubling down on its assertiveness in the South China Sea, harassing the forces of other countries and renewing this, um, this extraordinary claim, what to do.
0: <laughs> Why is this area so important for China to have control over?
1: That's a great question. There are many theories, and and it's interesting because even 10 years ago, the Chinese were not being as insistent on this issue as they are now. In fact, I recall quite clearly as um, as a scholar visiting Beijing in 2010 and having long conversations with experts then, this is the kinds of conversations you can't have these days because people are not so free to talk to foreigners anymore, where some of China's best analysts and thinkers on these issues were saying themselves, I don't know why, why are we being so... Assertive on this issue, it's not in our interest. We don't need to be making all of these enemies. Because, at one level, you know, the energy stocks, for example, the, the um, hydrocarbon deposits under the South China Sea, they may or may not be very substantial. Yes, China wants secure energy supplies, but I don't think that's the reason. Fisheries uh, are really important in the South China Sea. It's already vastly exploited and overfished primarily by the Chinese fleet, but also by other countries. Again, there's obviously a resource competition there to dominate the fisheries. That's another reason, but I don't think it's the reason. A third possibility is that China is trying further and further to push the forces of foreign countries further from its coast. That's understandable from a defensive point of view. China doesn't want foreign navies operating close to its shores because that can constrict its own movements. But by doing that, China is also jeopardizing the security of lots of other smaller countries around it that, in fact, rely for their security on the fact that not only their navies, but the navies of particularly the United States can operate relatively close to China under international law. There are so many possible reasons. One argument is that China wants the South China Sea as the so-called bastion, essentially a sanctuary or a hiding place for its submarine fleet, especially the nuclear-armed submarine fleet that it's building, because that way, in a future conflict with the United States, it can keep America at risk. The Americans won't know where the Chinese subs are and therefore will be in fear of a strike by Chinese missiles and therefore will not take... Aggressive action against China: a combination of any of those things. But Genevieve, I think, above all, uh, and as my book argues, there seems to be this this fairly out of control Chinese nationalism, almost with a kind of imperial quality to it. And therefore, under that narrative, the South China Sea is the relatively easy and obvious piece of territory that can be taken to to really demonstrate that China is making space for itself. In the world. Look, thousands of analysts have spent years trying to get to the bottom of this and we're, we're perhaps still not there and it's interesting because I'm not sure all of the experts in China quite know why they're doing what they're doing either.
0: Do you think this could also be a way for China to start consolidating the Belt and Road Initiative?
1: So the Belt, the belt and Road is this big, vague, opaque strategy that China's been unfolding over the past seven years or so what, it really, what that really is, in my view, is it's a grand label that brings together investment, infrastructure, diplomatic influence, also expanding military presence. A whole lot of things that are both good and bad, if you like, for the development of the region, because of course we want investment and infrastructure, but we don't want that to bring with it dominance by any one country. And that's unfortunately the way that China plays it. I think the South China Sea is part of that story, but the Belt and Road is really much, much bigger than the South China Sea, it extends. The Belt basically means the overland belt of connectivity across Eurasia, through Central Asia, South Asia, and so forth. Pipelines, roads, railways, and so forth. The road is short for the Maritime Silk Road, which is the ports, the shipping routes, the port infrastructure, the uh, undersea cables, and the naval presence that goes with all of this extending across the indian ocean and also into the south pacific and yes to get to the nub of your question the south china sea is is a vital stepping stone to being able to exert influence into the indian ocean into africa into the south pacific as well so i guess that is probably another of that list of five or six reasons. And if you add them all up, you can see why perhaps China has doubled down on this. But I also would argue that in many ways, it's to do with nationalism. It's to do with the party demonstrating to the Chinese people that it's in control, that even if their economy is not growing anymore, because for the last 20 or 30 years, it was usually the improving standards of living, that were the reason that hundreds of millions of Chinese people, or uh, a billion plus, consented to having their lives ruled by the Communist Party, even though they were beginning to acquire and, and, and I think in many cases, desire some degree of freedom. Now that that economic goody, if you like, of of, of guaranteed growth, is becoming uh, something of a receding hope. Instead, nationalism and national pride are filling the void and that means the party communist party feels that it cannot be seen to be backing down when china brushes up against other countries whether it's in south china sea or on the border with india or elsewhere and that does make for a really difficult situation a pretty volatile mixture and a very difficult diplomatic situation to manage
0: and is this the first time australia has been challenged in this region
1: the Australia-China story—it's probably a whole whole podcast un- unto itself. But you know, there's an argument that for most of the past thirty or forty years, the Australia-China story was actually one of quite beneficial coexistence between two very, very different countries, very, very different political systems. Uh, But there was a pragmatic element there, which was simply that China wanted the resources that our economy produces, particularly iron ore. We obviously wanted the export dollars. It was a a nice match. And of course, we import a a lot of cheap and in some cases, not so cheap manufacturers from China as well. But alongside that, I'd say for a number of years now, there's been this undercurrent of the clash between our interests and values with China. So for many years, there was some discomfort that we could be having an economic relationship with China, but at the same time, their political system was not only so different. You know, we're a liberal democracy based on equality, mutual respect, freedom of expression, multiculturalism, and so forth. And China is, at heart, a a one-party state where you've got uh, not only a Leninist system where one political party dominates in fact will allow no opposition but, but also in fact a really kind of ethnocentric system as well there's really a cultural chauvinism there about if you like superiority of of the Han Chinese culture and the combination of those two things makes potentially for a very repressive state which was beginning to in fact interfere inside the Australian political system, interfere with the diverse Chinese origin communities in this country, which is of course a breach of their rights as Australian citizens and a breach of Australian multiculturalism, interfere potentially in our politics, conduct espionage and so forth. So, So those factors were also bubbling along as well as the what I would call a geopolitical dimension, the fact that our our militaries were beginning to bump into each other in places like the South China Sea, and that the the rules-based order that Australia benefits from, a region where there's kind of a predictability in the behaviour of states and and respect for rules and norms that give small countries and middle-sized countries equal rights with large countries, all of that was was coming under challenge. So I I actually think that, unfortunately, there is an inevitability to Australia and China having frictions. That doesn't mean that it has to end in tears, and it certainly doesn't mean that Australia is going to be alone in that uh, contest. That's very much the topic of my book and what we're seeing at the moment, all sorts of coalitions of countries forming to try to set limits to Chinese power. But this issue isn't quite so new. The South China Sea issue has been bubbling away for the last decade or so, the foreign interference issue for at least the last three or four years. And I think what's clear now is that those people in the Australian debate, you know, including at one point me about 10 or 12 years ago, and I was much more optimistic about about China's future. Those of us who had assumed that an economic relationship with China would translate into relative... goodwill or coexistence or indifference in the international system we've now got to take a much more clear-eyed look at things and look at how Australia can protect itself work with others and try to persuade China towards some kind of settling point where it tones down its ambitions.
0: Essentially do you think it's wise that Australia is now kind of moving into a cold war with China and where do you see it moving into in the future?
1: So I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to use this term Cold War that's become very popular in describing what's going on. I mean, there are obviously some analogies with the Cold War. There is increasingly a clash of political systems, not just between Australia and China, and not just between America and China, but between a whole range of democracies and China, democracies in Europe, Asia, and elsewhere as well. But where it's different is that the Cold War involved really hard economic, containment. In other words, two completely different economic systems and it was essentially forbidden to trade or invest or engage closely with one another. So there was almost a deliberate effort to strangle the economy of the Soviet Union during the Cold War and that's one of the reasons why I think the Soviet Union lost the Cold War You know, with, with economic and social collapse. It's different now because especially for a country like Australia, of course we want to continue to have a mutually beneficial relationship with China if we can and really the choice there is China's choice it's not going to be australia's choice china's the one that's made economic threats against australia because of our criticism over the coronavirus australia is not threatening economic sanctions against china there is an element of cold war in what's called the decoupling agenda that is agenda that is the united states beginning partly to separate its economy from China's, particularly in areas like high technology. And I think we'll see more of that happening. I don't think it will lead to a complete decoupling, but a partial decoupling. And that's where the difficulty for Australia will arise, because we will need, obviously, to have economic relations with both America and China. We will have, I think, a more comprehensive set of relations with America than we will with China. We actually have a very strong investment relationship with the united states and a lot of people assume that china's this big investor in australia whereas actually you know there's a trillion dollars worth of accumulated american investment in this country about the same amount of money that china's promised on the Belt and road worldwide is already invested in the australian economy over many many years by generally private sector american investors so we how how is australia going to navigate this you know we don't want to move to all-out confrontation with china and we certainly don't want to do that on our own but at the same time i believe that australian political leaders both in government but also i think in the opposition as well have reached a point now where we realize we've got to take a stand we've got to protect our democratic institutions we've got to diversify our economy where we can we've got to become more resilient in things like supply chains and energy. We've got to make Australia, I think, stronger, more able to weather the difficulties that are going to come and to be willing to put up with a bit of pain in the China relationship so that over time, hopefully, we can find a more moderated settling point. And at the same time, offering a bit of wise advice to the Americans that, yes, we want America to protect itself and to, if you like, stand up for a rules-based order. And incidentally, it would be nice if the Trump administration actually did that consistently. And of course, it doesn't. Uh, But at the same time, we don't want America to move to all-out confrontation or conflict with China. So it's going to be a you know, difficult and fascinating time for Australian diplomacy. And if any of your, your your listeners are, I guess, young young diplomats and want careers in this space, I think uh, they're not going to have a dull moment.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. It feels, yeah, this is a very important issue at the moment, especially in this really uncertain time. It's been a privilege to discuss with you. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Jennifer. Even good luck with the, the program and uh, to you and your listeners with your careers as well. Cheers.
0: If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.